This is a Broad Pods production. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People say life is a journey, not a destination. But how do you know you're on the right path? If only we could see the signs when they appear. Well, I'm Amy Kwa. And I'm Jo Stanley. And on A to B, we speak to fascinating people about how they navigated their way to be here now, having profound impact on the world. We hope our conversations will help you reflect on everything you've been through to get here. The triumphs, challenges and bumps along the road. And if you haven't already, find your own map to what matters. It's very hard to put into a soundbite because there are so many elements that led to that moment on that stairwell, which is why I felt compelled to write not one but two books about it. Look at this suspense Um, building up. Yes, I'm loving it. It's great. (laughs) Now, our guest today has a travel story with you, Jo, which we are going to reveal later. She is an author of two beautiful books and lives a fantasy that many of us have. I know I do. She has her very own bookstore. The dream, Mimi. And it's down in Queenscliff, which is a beautiful part of Victoria. But yes, I first met the fabulous Jane Tuttle in Paris, back when she was starting out as an actor. Did we mention she's an actor as well? The city of Paris is significant because that is where the most life-changing moment of Jane's life happened. Now, Paris or Die is Jane's first book. She's now written another memoir called My Sweet Guillotine, or Guillotine, if you'd like to pronounce it that way. Thanks. Both <laughs> fabulous books, but nothing quite so sublime, I'm sure you agree, Joe, as the woman herself. Her A to B is truly astounding. And the vulnerability and energy that she brings to our discussion is just brilliant. Jane, so lovely to see you on our podcast. Oh my God, it's so nice to be here. Yes. Hi, Jo. Hi, Mimi. Excited. (laughs) Oh my God, it's, you know how women's voices get so high when we get excited? I'm aware Mm, that I need to. I'm aware of that. Yeah. I've got a very high voice when I'm excited. Oh Oh. my gosh. Oh, I was at Sorrento Writers Festival, which was amazing. And they came up and said, you know, can you just introduce what the event is that you're doing? And my voice was so high. It's actually just terribly embarrassing. So when you introduced me then, I was like, so hi, I'm Jane Tuttle. Oh, it's mortifying. So So, all right. then keeping it nice and low. That leads me to ask the question. Today, Jane, you are here to talk about your A (laughs) to B, right? 
Yes. Which is sort of a, you know, it's a, it's the journey that led you to this moment mm. right now. And there's a bit of awkwardness in this, in that a big part of your journey is an event that happened in Paris, which you've written two memoirs sort of about, but mm-hmm. about much more than that. Yep. And I don't know whether you're able to tell the story and the spoiler alert around that for people who might want to read your memoirs. Because yeah, I've just read Paris Will Die and it is sensational. Like yeah. it is just such an amazing book and I hope that my voice isn't getting really high now <laughs> oh because I'm getting excited, excited about it. It's a really amazing book. <laughs> so, yes, is it a spoiler if we discuss the incident? incident? Mm. Look, I don't think it's a spoiler at all because I feel like it's so strange that I repeat it over and over and over again and I still can't quite grasp that it happened. It's literally one so, of the most, you never, because do you know why, again, Mimi, our paths have crossed before. Yes. <laughs> so I met Jane in Paris and years later, my husband Daz says to me, oh my God, Jane had this accident. And it has sat with me since the very moment I heard the story. Like it is so amazing. Hmm. So you best share it. When you had this, when you heard the story from Darren, I'm curious to know what you understood because most people said to me, and I talk about this in the second book a lot. So sorry, you got your head caught in an elevator, you fell down the lift shaft. Um, I don't understand, uh, and I think, yeah, yeah, it, it was very simply. Uh, I believe I, I thought it was the door, the mm. elevator door. But then he explained the, you know, the sort of the setup of the, it's in Paris, it's one of those old apartment buildings. Mm. You know, you should tell the story. Yeah, yeah. tell the story because I think <laughs> yeah. there's this Australian nuance around what we understand to be an elevator or a yes. lift and there's the Parisian version. Yes. And actually before I tell the story, I will say that the reason that it's very hard to put into a soundbite because there are so many elements that led to that moment on that stairwell, which is why I felt compelled to write not one but two books about it. Look at this suspense um, building up. Yes, no, I'm oh loving it. It's wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it was January. Paris was dark. That's the opening of Paris Will Die. Mm. Um, and that's the setting of how this happened. So it was um, a very dark night in the middle of winter in Paris. I was very lonely. I'd just broken up with my boyfriend of two years, my fiancé actually. I just finished theatre school I had spent the Christmas period alone in this little apartment um, without enough money to buy a coffee or go to the movies or anything. So I sat in the dark a lot drinking cup of soup. And this one night uh, early in the new year, I got a phone call from a friend who lived down the road asking if I'd come to dinner. And I was disproportionately excited about going to this dinner and seeing these very, very high voice. Very, very high, high voice. voice. <laughs> I was very excited. <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> Uh, and so I rode my bike over and arrived in this um, building that I knew reasonably well. It was one of those old, very old Paris buildings. Actually, if you've ever seen Three Colours Blue with Juliette Binoche, you can actually see about halfway through the movie, she walks up a stairwell and you see a lift just moving freely up and down the, the centre. It gives me a bit of a heart attack when I see that scene. So you picture the old Paris stairwell. Uh, there's this intricate, beautiful old lift that just runs 
up the centre with no protection around it. So you open the little gate downstairs and you step in it and you go upstairs. This night it was very dark uh, and this lift was deadly silent and I'd never taken it before because my friends lived on the second floor of the building. I walked up the stairs to the second floor and knocked on the door and my friends weren't there, which was strange. So I I rang my friend and said, you know, where are you? And she said, I'm just entering the building. And so I looked down and I saw my friend Sophie and her little daughter Lou coming up the stairwell and I started to play this little game with the little girl, Lou. And she looked up and said, Jay. And I said, Lou. And I leant over the balcony just slightly and suddenly there was this moment where I couldn't breathe and I didn't know what had happened. But from the outside, what had actually happened was I had put my head in the path of the descending elevator. So I was standing on the stairwell still just leaning over. And these lifts were inserted in the middle of the stairwells in the mid-century. So they're very, the banisters are very low and I'm super tall and I was wearing heels that night. So I sort of easily, like at home in Australia, you know, you lean over them, you know, call, I used to call downstairs, you know, mom, what's for dinner? It was a bit like playing that game. So I, by some freak of nature, I managed to pull my head out. I think I was pretty aware that my life was about to end. Uh, I pulled my head out and fell down the stairs and in doing so broke my neck. Really, it's impossible to understand how I survived. So before you go on, Sorry. how quickly did it happen that you were able to, because I've, I've just read yeah. your book and I've just sort of been trying to put myself in your shoes and, and understand how it happened. And obviously, as um, there was impact, you mm. had no idea what was going on, but from the on the outside, had you was your reflex that fast mm. that you kind of pulled your head out of the way enough not to get taken down with the lift? Yeah, I think um, so. It felt like it, you know, like when you have an accident, and it feels like it takes minutes or hours. Yeah, it slows that moment. Down. I remember really clearly watching uh, Lou and Sophie walking up the stairs and just thinking, "Oh, this is funny." I can't make a sound. Oh, I sort of want to call out. I feel strange. But in fact, as time's gone on, I've realised I must have pulled it out straight away because they don't know why the lift stopped. They never figured it out. It actually stopped on the second floor, but there was no reason for it to stop because no one had called it. I, to this day, have this feeling that it was my will to live. I remember this really strong roar just rising in my body. It was like I described it in the book as like a train arriving, this sort of And at that moment I blacked out. So I don't even actually remember pulling my head out. I don't remember even really knowing that. I've got this incredible vision of you just standing in front of a train with your hand out and just stopping the train. It was like, Is it it like, was like a, It's like a, your primal being. Well, that's what I thought and I do discuss this in the second book, but I, um, the inspectors later on, I actually went back and pursued more detail on how the accident happened. And the lift experts all just laughed their heads off when they said, but you had to have pressed the call button for the lift. And I said, no, why would I? I was, my friends are walking up the stairs. I didn't even know where it was. And he said, well, how did the lift stop? And I said, look, I had this crazy rising of energy. And he just laughed. He was like, it's 1.5 tonnes of Steel. Steel and wood, you know, like mm. you're not. But there's also this, this is woo-woo, 
about uh, as we were, we were just talking about. We were Love before. It. My mum. There's a lot of discussion of grief in these books, and I I have this secret little feeling that she pushed the button. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> it was not your time to go, but you know it was a it was a huge uh, wake up call to say the least. It was a very strange and dark and interesting moment. So you, you know, ended up obviously being taken to emergency and the unfolding recovery from that, I imagine, still goes on. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like I, to be clear, I recovered amazingly well. The accident happened just after I'd finished these two years at this theatre school in Paris called Lecoq, this extremely rigorous theatre school. So I was kind of, I always liken it to Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. Like I, <laughs> I actually, my body was so strong and they, I fell well, if that's possible, <laughs> with a broken neck. Somehow right. I, I fell down a flight of stairs probably with the broken neck and somehow didn't displace it. So massively lucky to be able to, first of all, to be alive, but second of all, to be able to move. They didn't actually have to operate because I, at the time I was just turned 30 and they said, you know, like if you're a few years older, you would have had to have a lot more intervention. But if they we put you in this full-on cage, I called it, like a brace mm. and you don't move for four months, you will heal. And well, so there was the break... a moment in the book as well where you loosened the brace yes. and your sister told you a story that made you quickly put it back on. What was that? Yeah, the man on the road. The man on the road is in a big car accident, uh, fatal collision, and he's on the highway and he walks down to the next house. He gets up and he's okay, miraculously. He gets up and walks to a house and knocks on the door and he says, there's been an accident and they say, where? And he turns to show them and he falls down dead. So that's the accident that I had, exactly that. My, my neck was fractured but it was not displaced so if I turned in any way, I would have, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be here. So my sister one night, who's a nurse, she was looking after me and I, I loosened the brace because it was, it was hell to be in this cage. And she screamed at me, you've no idea how close you are to death at every second mm-hmm. for these next few months. So that was those months, but then there were... I mean, like I say, how long ago was that? So that was 20, 2007 the accident happened. So okay, what's so that? 15 for? years. 15 years, yeah. No, yes, Hang on. 15. All of us trying Soon. to do maths. Yes. <laughs> All of the creatives <laughs> trying to do maths. Let's get out our calculator. There's the promo. We'll just go to a break. Is anybody going to calculator? So let's say 15 years in that time. Yeah. How has that informed the person you are? Oh, massively. I mean, it's hard for me to know from the outside. Mm. I sort of look at the years. The first few years afterwards were very tenuous. You know, I didn't, I just finished theatre school. So the natural progression was to go on and make theatre. And I had a theatre company with some friends from school. And that was the sort of trajectory. But I found that I couldn't perform because I was so afraid of being bumped. I had this uh, and quite a lot of PTSD around freak accident, like freak things happening, I suppose, because the lift was so bizarre and so out of the blue. Yeah. Mm. I constantly thought things were going to just drop out of the sky, uh, such as um, in the second book, I talk a lot about the pot plants in Paris, you know, that are up on the windowsills. I just can't believe I'm constantly waiting for a pot plant I to just drop. I often thought, what, how are they secure? <laughs> That's a reasonable yeah, they're concern. Not, they're not. 
<laughs> you were being you were hyper vigilant. Hyper, yes, yes. Afterwards. yeah, yeah. And even going on from that, like when I being a mother, I remember moving back to Australia and being really freaked out by driving and thinking that a car could just come. Not at all. Not so worried about my own driving. Definitely worried about that, but more worried about just a car coming from nowhere. Mm. As still a bit. And I thought that was normal, so <laughs> no, but it is, it's normal out. for someone who's had an elevator fall on their head, yes. right? That is normal because yeah, because yeah. freak a freak thing did happen to you. Yeah, it has trained you to believe that it can happen again. So, what was it then yeah. about your? I'm interested in your relationship with your sister and with your family growing up. What was mm. it? Do you think? about your connection to family or who you were that gave you the resilience. Obviously the fierceness that came from you was from your mother, losing your mum. Mm. But when you were a child, what was your childhood like? What were you like? Oh, yeah. I was the village idiot in the family. So that was, <laughs> I remember my mum saying, oh, Jane, must you always be the village idiot? <laughs> I was this sort of annoying big sister clown trying to get attention all the time, fighting. I suppose I was the first child, so when the siblings came along, I was always felt like my spotlight was under threat. But um, in terms of resilience, the definitely, I mean, on a practical level, I was nourished by my family after the act. Uh, my sister came over to Paris and took me out of the hospital, which they were very glad for. They didn't have space for me. So they, I was released really early in her care. She looked after me for, I think it was a month or six weeks even until I was ready to fly home. Then I spent four months living with my dad down in this little seaside village of Point Lonsdale, which was really a very beautiful time. People felt very worried and sorry for me, but I had an exquisite time with my dad in this simple little life, being fed and washed by him, which was a bit odd. Uh, <laughs> um, and But going on, yeah, a very strong family, my two younger brothers as well. Like, um, So I always had that. I mean, my dad used to always say when I lived overseas, for example, or when I went and did something a bit crazy, he'd always say, you know, you always have, you always have somewhere to come back to. After my mum died, I felt a real desire to flee and to never come back, which Paris or Dyer talk about a lot, this desire to leave everything that was familiar behind and leave that nest, I suppose. I've, I couldn't quite confront the fact that everything looked the same after she was gone, like work and my family, my friends, even though, of course, they were going through their own grief and their own story. So I think they've endured a lot, my family. I've definitely put them through the ringer, but they've always been, yeah, extremely supportive. And, you know, it's not easy to read my books, I think, as one of my family members. No, I don't. I mean, there's a lot of sex. Apart well, from the yeah. Sex. My dad does that John Ritter <laughs> face when he's like, oh, you know. <laughs> I skip past those parts. He's cool about it, though. He's much cooler than I expected. He's oh, well, you're really, an adult. Well, yeah. <laughs> One of the hardest things was right putting words to this person who we all miss and we all have our own idea of. Putting my words to that was extremely, that was really tough. Mm. Um, not wanting to, oh, just wanting to get it right. Yeah, and worse, failing completely, of course. But. Well, I, I will say that that's almost my favourite. Like the books... Paris or Die is about, you know, multiple plot lines there. The love affair with Adrian and, you know, the loss of your mother. You write about grief so beautifully and, you know, I think that that's hard to do. 
I was reading about how we are, that there's a pathologizing of grief, that actually the symptoms of grief often uh, is now treated as like a mental illness and people don't allow you to let the grief just sit mm. and it can take well, decades, mm. however long it takes, right? Yeah. And you, you really kind of talk about grief in a beautifully real and raw way. I loved it. These books are set in Paris, but what was interesting to me the most was to see Paris through different eyes. So you really see them, you see Paris through the eyes of a young grieving theatre person in in the first book and in the second through a person who's suffered a trauma, a physical trauma. So there's another level of, look, it was a different uh, relationship with Paris. But the grief, I think that having lost someone in a really well, having lost somebody, I lost my mum to cancer, which was really extremely difficult, obviously. And I think that once you've had that, you are, to have your head nearly cut off by a descending elevator is actually kind of nothing. I remember the first, one of the first thoughts I had was like, I don't have cancer, you know, mm. I'm fine. I'm going to get better. She wasn't going to get better. So how could you ever feel sorry for yourself? You know, there's your only choice really is to just go out and live as hard as you can and as fully as you can and just milk it. That's when I feel her. I feel closest to her. Yeah, well, talk about A to B. I mean, we are so much created by the losses we've had. Mm. And do you think that loss then can be regarded as a trauma that needs to be processed and not compartmentalised that, as you say, Joe, can take years to actually get over. But you never get over it. I mean, when mm. people say, oh, you time, know, heals. time heals, I mean, that's just rubbish, it's, isn't it? Yeah, I find it absurd, to be mm. honest. Even the idea of getting over it, I, I feel like maybe if we accept that we're never going to get over mm. it, it's going to mm. live with us forever and it's going to morph and it's going to change and there'll be days where it won't be as acute. Mm. Reading the way you wrote about her passing, there are people who have lost loved ones to cancer who feel seen because mm. of the way you wrote it. Yeah, thanks. Mm. I, I think that's true. So now, now you're a mother yes. and I'm so interested to know how that is informed by not just your experience being mothered mm. but also not having your mother with you. Yes, it's huge. Um, I'm writing a lot about it now. My third book is about being a mother in Paris and trying to trying to manage the reality of life with the dream life that you have and the, you know, the ability that you've had to always control, to, to, to go out and seek, you know, to achieve the things you want and then becoming a mother and realising Ruins how, everything. Uh, yeah. How, <laughs> how impossible how that actually yes, is yes, to do with any aplomb. Yes. Aplomb. Um, oh, my God. Good word. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How, and you know where my arrows are pointing to in the book, how instrumental was your great love at the time relationship mm in your trajectory, do you think, Mm -hmm. as to who you are as a human? Because obviously the accident just flipped everything um, in your life and so it's probably difficult to dissect who you would have been had that accident not happened and the impact that your relationship would have had on you. But can you kind of go back to that time and, and think about how you met and what you were sort of trying to gain from that relationship or what you were hoping that you were both going to evolve into? Mm, yes. Well, I remember when I left Australia to go to the Lecoq School, I had one mission in my mind and that was just disappear into the dark night. You know, I wanted to lose myself completely in this other culture. I didn't want to look back. Just had a boyfriend when I left Australia. So sadly, I couldn't, he was like he was part of that grief And he just got cut off, left behind. I couldn't bring that over into this life. I knew I wanted to disappear. And so then along comes this very dark, very French man. And I remember being quite lost in this idea of catapulting myself onto him. Can we just say devastatingly good looking as described in your book as well? Yes, he was extraordinarily (laughs) good looking. Like Mm. he was sort of, it was, it was like a dream in a lot of ways. Like I had sort of programmed my, my boyfriend back home had said to me, you're just going to run off with some Frenchman. And I remember thinking, I don't want to do, that's not what this plan is. But I remember thinking there was a, a note in that. And it sounds sort of, it sounds romantic kind of friend. It's sort of embarrassing in a way that he was so that cardboard cut out. Um, but it was like I was living in a dream at that point. Mm. You know, like my life, I'd, I'd sort of died in a way. I was sort of off in the in the clouds. And so, of course, this perfume model man is standing in front of me and, of course, he doesn't speak English and, of course, he's an actor. I feel compelled to to ride this thing, ride being probably not the right choice of words. But at um, times very much the right choice of words. <laughs> but he represented so much that was just in another world to me. And he was a different, he had a very, he was culturally very, very different to anything. He was dangerous. He was jealous. He was insecure. He was, you know, from a, a very old boys' school, so he had this kind of aristocratic uh, group of friends, which was also part of this weird fantasy, I suppose, in some ways. Like, um, So do you feel like you created this construct around you? Is that yeah. kind of what you're saying? It's almost that yeah. the words of your ex-boyfriend helped you to manifest this new life yeah. because you'd set yourself adrift. From- I mean, if you were a scriptwriter... Like it's literally a movie, what you created. Yeah. 
it's kind of like I say, it would be almost cliche to mm. have that guy. Can't you be like, oh, seriously, that's not, a French guy, isn't that? You know, we. But he also can be, mm. and it is that heightened reality. But it was. I mean, you, I believe you met him. Joe. I did, yes, and he was him. devastatingly he good was looking, insane. Yeah. It was on another. His friends too, like they were yeah, all like. It was I like remember the... just going. I was so Australian, <laughs> and so bogan. <laughs> We are all so sophisticated. We knew how to have fun, and yeah. they really. It was it was an interesting milieu to break into. It was a uh, quiet. There was a lot of rules, and at the same time, I'm at this theatre school where it's about just letting it all out, letting it all go. There was no if any false pretension was just drilled out of you. So as time went on with the theatre school, and I became more and more sort of pummeled deeper into the creative part of myself and the real part of myself, the more it became at odds with this sort of ordered Frenchman's life and the more we began to clash. And the Frencher I actually became, conversely, the more I understood his language, the more I learnt my own through my friends in the theatre school, through my environment in the 10th arrondissement, like I, the more that I, we just didn't see each other anymore. He sort of, it almost was like he disappeared into mm. sort of with the smoking ban. It was almost like you created him. You projected yeah. your aspirations of this new life that you were constructing around yourself and then he disappeared just like in the movie that I feel that you now have to make. <laughs> yes. Yes, let's make it. Come but, on. And so the other interesting thing, so if we're talking about this pathway that makes us who we are in this moment right now, and it's made up of massive events like an accident like yours, but made up of tiny things as well, right? Yeah. That's, they're the jigsaw puzzle pieces, the places we were. And Paris, I mean, we all have those those environments that we maybe have lived in or perhaps we're in with t- for a fleeting moment that have created us. Mm. So what impact has Paris had on you? Oh, such a huge impact. I mean, I probably went to Paris I got that crazy grant, but the idea of Paris was in my head because I'd been there as an au pair when I was 22. I'd studied it through uni and school. And I hated Paris when I went as an au pair. Absolutely hated it. I was miserable. I stayed in my little room and like read Bret Easton Ellis novels, you know, like I, I, and then I went home and, but it left something with me in that like I had this moment uh, where I saw the view for myself in Paris for the first time, I didn't even know what the point was of ever being alone. And that first trip just sowed that seed in me. Oh, there's actually life to be had just on my own. Mm. And so after mum died, I instantly thought, began to think of Paris again because I knew for, a, I'd known for a fleeting second what it was to be alone. And then when I arrived in the 10th arrondissement, which was on the Rue du Faubourg Saint-Denis, where so much of my writing takes place, in fact, all three books take place around this street. Turning up in that street was like entering a new world. It's just an absolute heady clash of culture and language and smells and colours and it was an anonymity. I could pretend I was from somewhere else. I didn't, I wasn't going to bump into anyone I knew, you know, in my street or in my neighbourhood. So could that have been anywhere? Did it have to yes. be in that street? It really, I actually think I could have gone to Turkey. I could have gone to Japan. I could have, mm. it could have been anywhere at that point. The and grief so, was, had made me a real sponge. 
So what was the sliding door moment or the epiphany or the the trigger that sent you the second time, other than mm. the fact you'd already planted the seed of wanting to be in Paris, but what made you go for the grant mm. to be able to afford to go back and study? That was another little woo-woo magic moment because I had... I had done a workshop when I was at theatre school in Australia. I'd done a workshop with, um, actually, I remember, Joe. you did one with a clown from Brazil. You had yeah, the us. workshop festival. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like an international workshop mm. festival. And all these fantastic people came from all over the world. And in that workshop, there were a few people that had been to the Lecoq School in Paris. I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know anything about it. And they talked a lot about it. And that sowed the seed. I started thinking about Paris again. And I thought, oh, my God, I would love to go to that theatre school. I started reading books about it and then I investigated it and it was horrendously expensive, impossible. I was a, you know, I didn't have pot to piss in. I was eating tuna out of a can, I think, for dinner. I mean, you could um, have afforded a plate, surely. I couldn't, no, <laughs> straight out of the can. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't no, resist. I know, that's true. That is, yeah, yes, I probably could have. That's, it was a state of mind thing. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, yeah, and so I put it out. I'd done these the, – I'd worked with this theatre company, the Melbourne French Theatre Company, and I just put an email out to the director and said, I'm thinking of applying for a scholarship. Do you know of any scholarships or, or can I apply to the embassy? And then by some miracle what had actually happened was it was that moment in life where they happened to have had someone cancel something they had the money sitting there. They needed to attribute it quick because the end of the financial year was coming around or something. My friend sends this email. Bam. I got two years at this incredible theatre school. My fees were paid. My carte de séjour was paid. It was like a miracle. Two years of pure creativity. Because the universe wanted you to do that. The universe wanted you to do that. It do just, you think that things are meant to be? Uh, yeah. Well, I think when you look back, they're always meant to be. Like it, I... Who knows what I would have done. But so then, because my mind unravels, right, the universe wanted you to be at that school, wanted you to meet Adrian, wanted you to then even like what has happened since having Mm. the accident, all of these sort of moments along your path are connected, right? Yeah. It's one can't exist without the other, do you think? Actually, I I do think about this, if this, if this, if this, Mm. if this. You know, I remember when that grant came about, I remember saying to my sister, oh, my God, like this is a miracle. How did it happen? And she said, yeah, but you did study French, you know, for years. years. You are an actor, like (laughs) acting, theatre. You You did apply for it. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not like it's come out of nowhere. But I do think, yeah, we are all on a path. And I think it's, you know, there's opportunities it's the interconnectedness of everything. Yeah, your sister is a pragmatist and I love her yes, for it, but I'm quite the opposite. So, that I, <laughs> But we need both in this world, don't you? Totally the yeah. universe. So one last thing before we get to our fun little surprise and delight, which is <laughs> Mimi's turn today. Ooh. It is that connection and that's that, that just chance connection. And I love the story of how you and your husband connected over cryptic crossword. Mm-hmm. Like, it I mean, I think that that's... Very hot. No, but... It, <laughs> I, I, I feel like the stories of how people meet is the epitome of A to B and sliding doors because mm. a shift a millimetre either way and you might not have met. 
So true. Well, you know, when you get older and you sort of like, if you meet someone even for a second, you're like, okay, marriage, kids, you know, you start running ahead, you know, oh, we're going to, what's this going to mean and everything. We had that, the beauty of having that relieved from us because I was robot girl in this neck head brace. I was a mess of a human stitches. So we had this opportunity to be friends and to get to know each other and to talk and the David Astle cryptic crossword on a Friday in the age is like a kind of secret society of freaky nerds. And I would do four or five clues in a week and I'd be done. Like it was so hard. And Matt in his own corner was doing the cryptic as well in his uh, doing his own five or six clues. Then we get together and start putting our brain, like he would get the opposite end of the, of the grid to me, you know, like, and so together we actually formed this perfect brain. I love it. <laughs> And we got one out together. Like that sounds so, you know. Word nerds unite. But, um, yeah, it was Mm. put on the fridge and it was a very, but it was like, "Mm, that's pretty cool. Mm, That's awesome. And I think now how many people are being brought together by Wordle, which even the the origin story of Wordle is fun. The next journey we're going to go on. Oh, yes. Is our surprise and delight segment, which is an origin story about something well-known. I did try to choose an origin story, not necessarily related to you, Jane, but with you in mind. I'm very excited. With all of us in mind, actually. We are going back to 1924 in Dallas. Bette Claire McMurray is born. Her mother owned a knitting store and taught Bette how to paint. This is a very important element Mm, to the story. I love it already. Highlight that. Okay. And her father worked in an auto parts store. Not as important, but still important. Bette grew up with a creative parent and a parent who likes to fix things. She got married at 17 to her childhood sweetheart, a soldier called Warren, who went off to World War II. And while he was away, she had their only son, Michael, who, crazily and unrelated to this story, was a band member in The Monkees. Love it. I don't want to get distracted by that. But I do like the aside. It is yes. an amazing and interesting aside. All right, won't get distracted. Warren and Bette, the husband and wife, they got divorced in 1946 and with a small child to support, Bette had to take on several odd jobs, mm-hmm. understandably, and she eventually learned shorthand and typing. Finally, she found a full-time job as an executive secretary at the Texas Bank and Trust in Dallas. Typewriters had just gone from fabric to carbon ribbons, and this is probably going to make zero sense to anybody who was born in the last 25 years, but mm-hmm. I feel like us at this I table know. understand. Explaining what an electric typewriter is to my daughter, she, her brain just, she's like, what, you couldn't delete? I'm like, no, Exactly. Bad. Well, this is bringing <laughs> us to the dynamic of the story. <laughs> And the keypad was more sensitive, so that meant more errors by the typists in the typing pool. Erasers that had once worked now smeared the carbon across the paper and it was a secretarial <gasps> disaster. But don't worry because Bet, who knew how to paint, who knew how to mix paints and remembered that painters paint over their mistakes on canvas, Bet thought, why can't we just paint over our mistakes? Mm. And so, oh my goodness, Bet invented liquid paper. Amazing! Ah. But the story 
story doesn't end there. Oh, my there. God. Good on you, Bex, with your liquid paper. I could not have got through Year 12 without you. She called it mistake out. Call it what it is. Explain yeah. people on mistake the packet. Mistake out, what exactly. It is. Yeah. So anyway, so her son, who eventually went on to join the monkeys, he and his friend, this is pre-band, he and his friend sat in her kitchen and in her garage eventually as the business grew, filling up these little bottles oh of God. mistake out. She got married again. She and her husband then grew the company to the point where they were selling hundreds of thousands of mistake outs. She then divorced her husband for whatever reason. I don't know. She was now a single woman again with a full-time small business that she worked in. She applied for a patent. Liquid Paper was very successful, but the husband was still on the board of the business and then he squeezed her out. But luckily she had the strength and tenacity within her to fight back and she somehow legally won back the business, won back the patent and then sold Liquid Paper, as it had been renamed, to Gillette for $47.5 million and her royalty rights were reserved. Bet. Good on you, Bet. There's a bit of everything in that, wasn't there? There's a bit of writing, typewriting, painting, girl power. Were you a writer as a child? Were you a performer as a child? What, like Bet, might you Mm. have actually discovered as a child that you now are informed by? So I think I was quite fascinated with the world of performance from a young age. I definitely was putting on plays and things like that from a from the womb. And so theatre was always something that I love. Uh, so I'm constantly trying to reach out to the audience. I was always very embarrassed about the accident and about my story, but I needed to reach another level of it in order to distance it from myself. Why were you embarrassed? About the accident Mm. or about, oh my God, I was mortified. In fact, I didn't want to put it in the first, in Paris or Die for a very long time. It took me a long time to accept that that was very much part of that story. It was, I was, I think I was embarrassed. A lot of it was because I didn't understand it either. And it was hard, hard to write about and hard to articulate because I was never sure how responsible I was you know, I, I was so worried that I had hurt other people, upset other people. So it's it's a, a complicated mix of emotions and shame. I think profoundly we struggle to accept in life that things happen to us. And yes. that, that is so much a part of our journey from A to B is things happen to us. Like we have no control. We have no, and I'm very aware of that. Yeah, life throws funny things at you. And I feel like, yeah, I, I, I accept, I definitely feel a sense of acceptance at what happened. It, I had to in order to come at the writing of it. It's definitely still a working progress. It's still a sort of weird grief. I still, mm. honestly, there is so much I still don't understand. Like but it's in the past or is it past. still very much in the present? It's still, well, mm. but I, again, it's in the past I, enough to be able to write yeah, it yeah. and to feel fine and to feel great about it. But you're becoming, aren't you? Like we're all becoming, We're all right? moving towards. We, so we say this is A to B, but it, yeah. it, B isn't a destination or yeah. a full stop. Mm. You're being in this moment right now, but then, yeah. then you continue to grow from there. And so what is your B? Like what is it for you, Jane Tuttle, to be? Hmm. The beautiful thing about doing these things is you moving forward. I love growing old. I actually love getting old. I love it. 
and I love being able to sort of reflect on what it is I'm doing and what the point of me is or what the point of, yeah, my being is. And I think I want to be more awkward and more raw and more real and more vulnerable. Uh, These are the things that I'm terrified of and when I hit up against them, I struggle very hard, as we all do, but I'm learning that the more that I lean into that, the more interesting it is. And I've definitely done that. I don't know what else I've done with these books other than that, actually. I've lent into that place. Now I just want to keep going further. So I think naked. Yeah. Mm. I just want to be more and more naked as I get older. Yeah. <laughs> It It is so great. (laughs) So what would you say to your younger self 15 years ago after the accident Mm. when you're probably completely disorientated, recovering, not knowing where life is going to take you because it's certainly not going to plan Mm. at that point, what would you tell yourself? I'd probably say just keep going because I, it gave me so much. I mean, the accident gave me so, like it gave me an incredible insight into the fragility of life and death in life and really feel what it was to be alive, just to feel my heart beating, not knowing if I'm going to walk again and just being like, it's fine. I get to just have my heartbeat. And I I mean, talk about just being like you're in the moment, literally, because that's all you can do. So I'd probably say, I mean, it was really hard. I, I'm not glossing over it. I'd probably just say just just, just keep going forward. When I had the accident, as, as written in Paris or Die, this voice was in my head which, is, which said just keep looking forward, look at the wall, lie very still. And that idea of just like just keep looking forward is really helpful. Don't look too far in here. Don't get lost in here. Just keep your eye forward. Amazing. I'm just speechless. It has been so incredible talking to you, Jane, like just listening to your voice, reading your words on the page is one thing and you write, but you speak so beautifully too. Like you've just, yeah, (laughs) everything. It's been a lot, but it's been amazing. Your ability to articulate just the human condition really Hmm. is you know, if anything's going to happen for a reason, there's huge impact in what you're doing because of your experiences. So mm. thanks. Thank you. Thank it's you. Amazing. Thanks for reading and listening and yeah. get the books. the questions. Get the books. Read you it. must read, <laughs> read them. Read it. Paris or Die, My Sweet Guillotine, both of them. What do you say, guillotine? Guillotine. Oh. Guillotine. I actually say guillotine, but I've noticed in um, events and stuff, people are like, my sweet guillotine, and I'm like, oh. We're trying to because we're, 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 we're doing <laughs> our best to doing our sound best like at French. Thank you for listening. We love you joining us for our A to B chats. Yes, we do. Please see our show notes for our acknowledgement of country and all the people who help us put this podcast together, as well as interesting links to our guests' work and other references we've mentioned. Such as your frequently unverified quotes. Yes, I may (laughs) still need to check a few of those. Thank you. We're Jo. And Mimi from A to B. Rate, follow and get in touch on our website. And let us know who's A to B you'd like to find out about. We can't wait for you to hear our next conversation.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.